If you got your Bibles, open to 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, as you're flipping that direction, okay, you're going to notice the title of a message today uh, that for some of you might make you a little bit nervous, all right? For those who are worried about the direction of the country. Now, here's the thing. I want to preface it with this. We have a rule here at Waterfront Church that we stick with, uh, and we will continue to stick with that today, and that is we don't talk politics at Waterfront Church. You'll hear me say regularly, politics, politicians, and policies are always changing, but the Word of God stands forever. Amen? We also say that there is no law uh, that could govern us better than Scripture, and there is no uh, individual that could lead us better than Jesus himself. And so uh, that is the church's perspective, and it will continue to be. Um, but the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today, apart from politics, addresses this very question because that's exactly what Elijah is navigating. Now, just so you know, you ever been part of something where uh, someone offered a unique perspective at a very unique time? Um, that happened for uh, my family. I'll never forget. Uh, my dad was preaching at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event back in the day with a guy named Tom Landry. Uh, Tom Landry uh, was one of the most famous coaches in the history of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I've been a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan. And uh, my dad was sitting with Coach Landry, uh, a very unique individual, a unique voice at a very unique time. The FCA banquet was the night that Jerry Jones fired Jimmy Johnson uh, as the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys as well. And so my dad was one of the speakers at this FCA event, and he's sitting with Coach Landry, and when the news came across the wire, everybody's leaning in going, what is Coach Landry, the unique person, the unique voice at this unique time have to say? And I'll never forget dad saying, he said, we all leaned in and said, what do you think about this? And uh, sure enough, Coach Landry said, there is one coach in Dallas, one head coach, and his name is Jerry Jones. He said, that's the situation. Some of you who are Dallas Cowboys fans are like, yep, that is still the case to this day, and it's been 25 years since we've won anything at all. Enough of that, but just to tell you. Now listen, unique time, unique voice. We are here, and the Lord led us to start a church in Washington, D.C. We moved here almost seven years ago, and in the last seven years, what we've experienced is two volatile presidential elections, a pandemic, riots in the streets, riots in the Capitol. It has been a crazy, crazy stretch. And for those of you who have lived here through this, we offer a very unique perspective in a unique set of circumstances. And today, the message that I want to share with you honestly has to do with the question that I think I get asked more than any other question here in D.C. over the last seven years. And it's been from all different types of people question has to do with this. Have you ever felt like everything was falling apart? Have you ever felt like everything was falling apart? Throughout the last seven years, we have experienced that question in a very, very uh, different way. And for those of you who've moved here from somewhere else, you probably have people from your hometown that reach out to you uh, as their representative here, right? Uh, who reach out to you and ask about what's going on here because it's affecting them back home as well. Have you ever felt like things were falling apart? For Elijah, in the passage that we've been studying leading up to this, that is exactly how he feels, because you got to understand this. Elijah had in his head, what if we got the entire nation together, if they all experienced a miracle of Almighty God, the awesomeness that he knows of God, what if they experienced it all together at the same time? Elijah then goes, and what if they all experienced repentance at the exact same time? Remember, the fire falls from heaven, and then after that, the people 
fall to their face and cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They denounce Baal. They claim Yahweh is the one true God. I mean, Elijah is sitting there at that point going, "Woo! awesome miracle. Shared experience for the entire country. Shared repentance for the entire nation. And then all of a sudden, he then, remember, takes the prophets of Baal, the ones who've committed genocide, takes them down off the mountainside, tries them, and then executes them for the genocide that they've committed. And then he comes back into the king's palace. It's raining again in the country. Blessing is beginning to flow. And I promise you, at that point, Elijah is thinking, "Woo! all this good stuff happened, and the nation is finally moving in the right direction. But in the passage we studied last week, at the beginning of chapter 19, Jezebel cries out, just because you had this moment doesn't mean we're a Yahweh nation anymore. And she says, with every ounce of power I have, I'm going to chase after you and I'm going to kill you. Elijah then gets scared, runs 70 miles into the wilderness. And then at the end of the passage, it says for 40 days and 40 nights, he hides and tries to make his way to the mountain of Almighty God. You see, Elijah gets low because I guarantee you, he thought if they experienced the big miracle, if they repented in unison together, if we went through the trial and executed the prophets of Baal who committed genocide, then surely we would be a godly nation again. And instead, he's on the run and fearful and feels like everything is falling apart. Look with me, if you will. At 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, it says, So he went into a cave, and there he spent the night. Now stop right there, and right next to that little verse, write down Exodus 33, 22. Exodus 33, 22. Some of you may even, if you have a reference Bible, it's going to have that listed in the margin for that verse. Can I tell you why that's important? Elijah has just run to the mountain of God. Again, 70 miles plus 40 days and 40 nights and slinking his way up there so that he can have this moment. But here's why he wants to go there. Because this particular cave, this particular mountain is the place where Moses got the glory of God revealed to him when he was at a low point, when the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness. What you have here is Elijah running as fast as he can, scared to death for his life from Jezebel, and as he runs, all of a sudden he gets to this cave, and when he's there, he thinks, you know what? I want the Moses suite, I want the Moses treatment, and I want you, God, to reveal yourself to me the same way you did to Moses when he was at his low point. I need you to tell me what to do because I thought if they repented, I thought if they saw the miracle, I thought again, if they executed the prophets of Baal, that all of a sudden everything would start moving in the right direction again. I thought that this was a recipe for success and yet the prophets are still on the run. The prophets of God are still on the run. Look at what happens next. I want the Moses suite. I want the Moses treatment. Here's what it says next. It says, and the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Underline and highlight, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's the Lord's way of saying to him, why are you running away? I am almighty God. I am sovereign. I sent fire from heaven for crying out loud. You've experienced my power. I fed you with the mouths of ravens. I fed you. I, 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 I fed you through a brook. I, I, I gave you water through a brook that uh, continued to run even through a time of drought. I've taken care of you through a widow and oil that, uh, that didn't run out flower that didn't run dry. 
Look at what it says here at the next. I'm about to, he says, uh, he says there in verse, uh, in verse 10, he replied, Lord, I've been very zealous for you, for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. Only I am left. I'm the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Now stop right there for just a minute. The prayer of Elijah here is not really prayer. It's worry at Almighty God. He looks at God and basically here are Elijah's thoughts. Put these up on the screen for just a second. You could sum up his prayer in this, his thoughts in this. I did all I could. The country's divided and falling apart. Nobody's preaching the truth but me, and I'm afraid for my life. That's basically what he says in this worry at God. Again, crying out, Lord, I've been zealous for you. I've, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They put the prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now, remember the story of Obadiah. There are a hundred prophets of Almighty God hidden in the mountainside that Elijah knows about. He's being very melodramatic with this, but it's because it didn't turn out in society the way that he'd hoped that it would. The recipe that he had put together in his own mind for what God's plan was has not come together in the way that he thought it was going going to. And because of that, he is deeply discouraged and filled with this worry. Again, I did all I could. The country's divided and falling apart. Nobody's preaching the truth but me, and I'm afraid for my life. The Lord's comment from the beginning is, what are you doing here? You see, Elijah's worry is predicated on his experience, but it is not built on a foundation of truth. The truth is God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, through whomever he wants. So Elijah is worrying instead of being in tune and in step with the will of God. There's a great movie called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Did you ever see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? It's by far the best of the whole series. The first one's pretty good. The second one is super weird. Temple of Doom, super weird, okay? And the third one's the best. The fourth one, I don't even know if I'd watch the fourth one. All right, the fourth, fourth one was pretty bad. All that to say, if you're a Shia LaBeouf fan, maybe, all right? But anyway, all that to say. The third one, you have an element that's added to the Indiana Jones legend, and that is Sir Sean Connery uh, as Indiana Jones' father. Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones, height of his career, and then you've got uh, Sir Sean Connery coming in playing Indiana Jones' father. Do you remember? I mean, it's just a great, great situation, but there's a scene that always sticks out at me. I think one of the culminating scenes of the whole movie. It's when Indiana Jones has been fighting against the Nazis, and all of a sudden, as he's fighting them, he's fighting a tank, and do you remember the scene? They're fighting on the tank, and then all of a sudden the tank goes over the side of a cliff, and it looks like Indiana Jones is on it when it plummets down to the base, and then the tank explodes right there at the bottom. And you watch it. Indiana Jones's father, played by Sean Connery, runs up to look over the side, and then Indiana Jones's two best friends are standing right there beside him, all looking over the edge, and they're assuming, the assumption is, that he has been killed in this plummet towards the bottom. And do you remember? They're staring over the edge, and throughout the whole movie, Sean 
John Connery is the father. Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. They've butted heads the whole movie, but you know that there's love beneath the surface. And do you remember? They look over the edge, and in the only way that Sean Connery, Sir Sean Connery, could do, he looks over the edge, and you can see the terror in his eyes that he's just watched the death of his son over a pursuit that they have over this archaeological item. And as they're looking over the edge, the pain fills his face. And on the other side, you begin to see Harrison Ford grab a set of roots like a rope, and he begins to climb up. He's dragging himself through the dirt, but they're so preoccupied with the tank blowing up and them thinking that it's the death of their friend that they're so consumed with it, they don't even help him get up. And so he climbs his way up, drags himself through the dirt, and do you remember the scene? Indiana Jones walks next to him and he just starts looking over the ravine as well. He just starts following their lead, like, well, if they're looking at it, it must be important. Do you remember the scene? All of a sudden, Sean Connery looks over and sees his dead son alive. And he grabs him, presses him close to his chest, and says, I thought I lost you, boy. I thought I lost you. You see this moment of love, and you watch it even on Indiana Jones's face, not understanding. You watch him grin because this love between father and son finally is shown after struggle for 30 years. Now listen to me. We stare over the ravine sometimes and we see the explosion. We assume that struggle has taken place that is beyond God's control, but we forget the truth that God is sovereign, that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, through whomever he wants. It begs the big million dollar question today. What should believers do when we get worried about the direction of our country? Let me ask that again. What should believers do when we get worried about the direction of our country? I'm not trying to push any agenda here. I'm just trying to preach the passage of scripture. The word of God is living and active. It says in scripture, sharper than any double-edged sword, And this week, I've preached this passage many, many times. But after seven years in D.C. and the time period in which we've lived, the unique circumstances that we've lived here, I saw this passage with new eyes. And I saw Elijah, that it says in James chapter 5, was just a man. He was just like any one of us. As many struggles as we have, and yet filled with incredible, unprecedented faith, we watch him navigate and learn to trust God even when the world doesn't look like we thought it was going to look. What should believers do when we get worried about the direction of our country? You ready for this? Now look at 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 11. 1 Kings 19, now let's look at verse 11. So Elijah started out and said, I want the Moses suite, I want the Moses treatment, I demand to meet with you, and I want you to tell me what my marching orders are. I want to see you, Lord, face to face. Now here it is, verse 11. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the side of the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. This is the Lord saying, you want the Moses treatment? I'll give you the Moses treatment, all right? Just the same way he left the cleft so that he could go and stand there and see me pass by, I want you to go do the same. It says, then a great and powerful wind tore the the rocks apart, tore the mountains apart, and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Circle, highlight, and underline, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. Underline earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there came a fire. Underline a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there came a gentle 
whisper. Underline a gentle whisper. One translation scripture says it this way, a still, small voice. You see, in the wind, in the fire, in the earthquake, the awesome miracles of Almighty God, the demonstrations of his power, the change that takes place in the heart of man is through the still, small whisper that you know could not have come from you, that came from somewhere else. The nation of Israel had experienced it. The miracle of Almighty God and then the demonstration of repentance where they all bowed down before God at the same time. The power of Almighty God through the trial that took place on Baalism and the prophets of Baal. Again, the powerful moment where they united again and said what they've done, the sacrifices they did, the human sacrifices were genocide. That was murder. That was not sacrifice to a God. Their God doesn't exist. Even that moment in that demonstration was fire. It was earthquake. It was wind. The still small voice is what changes a person. The still small voice, listen to me, is what affects eternity. If you're taking notes, write this down. And for some of you, the whole reason you're here today may be for this one point. What should believers do when we get worried about the direction of our country? Number one is find the stillness. Find the stillness. If you are the type of person that gets so worked up and all you have to do is turn on the news, see a Facebook post. In fact, for some of you, it's not even the news. It's just a headline, and it ruins your day completely. Did you know that the enemy is working through that? I'm telling you, you got to be in the headspace where you understand what we do in this city is incredibly important. The decisions being made for our country are very important, and yet God is still on his throne. Amen? That is the truth on which we stand. And if we don't believe that, then we miss everything else, just like the Indiana Jones scene. You're looking over the cliff going, it's over. Indiana Jones is dead when the truth is he's climbing up the side and he really could use your help so that the roots don't break and he doesn't fall down, right? Walk over to the side and help the Lord. Or walk over to the side and help him up the hill. Walk over to the side and be a part of what God is truly doing. Matthew Henry wrote this. And by the way, this was sometime between 1680 and 1710 when Matthew Henry writes this. So 50 years, uh, more than 50 years before our country was even founded, Matthew Henry writes this. He says, God chose to make known his mind in whispers soft, not in those dreadful sounds. Let me say that again. God chose to make his mind known in whispers soft, not in those dreadful sounds. The demonstrations of God's power get our attention but the still small voice is what changes us for eternity. The voice of the Spirit changes you. Sometimes we can continue down a path of destruction when the Lord tries to get our attention, but when we don't ever stop to listen to what the voice is actually telling us to do. I've told you this story before, but I'll share it again. One of the darkest moments of my whole life when I was in college, um, I dated the same person for three and a half years. And after more than three years together, we got engaged. And uh, honestly, there were all sorts of red flags to let us know this was not the right decision to make. But we'd been together so long, it just seemed like the next thing to do. And so I'll never forget, her dad was not for it. 
Um, he let me know that, but we bowled forward anyway, and we got engaged. And uh, I'm telling you, I was under incredible conviction, but I just kept moving. I was waiting tables 30 hours a week at Red Lobster at the time. Um, was uh, uh, was also playing lacrosse uh, at the time, also at, at Oklahoma State University. And uh, I'll never forget, I just kept moving. And finally, there was a moment of stillness. I did the first holiday I've ever spent away from my parents. I went to spend Christmas with her family in Owasso, Oklahoma. And I'll never forget, they put me in the front bedroom of their house. And uh, we had had just a really awful day. There was definitely wind shattering the rocks before the Lord. And there was definitely fire and, and definitely uh, earthquake. And then that night, I said, I need to spend some time by myself. It was Christmas evening, and I went into the side bedroom. I laid in the bed, and I stared at the ceiling, and it was completely quiet. And all of a sudden, the Lord placed a prayer in my heart. I prayed, Lord, don't let me eat or sleep until I do the right thing. At that time, I didn't know what the right thing was. I didn't want to break up with her. We've been together for three and a half years. Plus, we met on the first day of school. The friends that we made were not her friends or my friends. They were our friends because we had met them together. And whoever did the breaking up was definitely going to get all the friends. It's just the way that it works. I remember it was 72 hours later, and I was a real hungry dude. But at the end of that time, I went and we broke up. Just so you know, it was as bad as I ever dreamed it would be. It was an awful experience. It was humiliating. Some of you have been through divorce. Some of you have been through a botched engagement. It was humiliating. All my family, we'd said we were getting married. All her family had said we'd getting married. And then all of a sudden to have this moment, but in the stillness, the Lord revealed to my heart what needed to change in me. Not the macro of what needed to change for society, but what I needed to do to follow the Lord. And my life is different because of it. I got to marry my best friend, my soulmate. We got four amazing kids, and we planted a church together in Washington, D.C., of all places. That's what was on the line that day, and no one but God could have known that. Maybe some of you needed to hear that today. God chose to make known his mind in whispers soft and not in those dreadful sounds. There are some of you that are waiting for an earthquake, for fire from heaven, or for... Uh, Wind that shatters the rocks before the Lord. By the way, I'm from Lubbock, Texas originally. I know about wind that shatters the rocks before the Lord. I mean, Dovers, y'all know that too, right? And we've known, we know what that wind looks like. Can I just tell you? It's to get your attention. The power of Almighty God comes in that Spirit's whisper to your heart. By the way, Jesus understood this. Save your spot in 1 Kings, but flip over to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 35 through 37. Here's what it says. Jesus understood this powerfully. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, underline while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Underline went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Lord, 
Everyone is looking for you. Stop right there for just a minute. There is no one in more high demand in the entire world at this point than Jesus. I'm telling you, he's special. Again, he's from Almighty God, sent to save us. He's teaching. He's working miracles at this point. But what does he do at the very beginning so he can have a clear head through the day? He gets alone with the Father so that he can work through in the stillness what it is that he needs to do for that day. So much so that he gets up while it's still dark and finds a way to isolate. One of the reasons that we can't find the stillness in this city is because we have been Pavlovian conditioned, or whatever it's called, conditioned like Pavlov's dog, to whenever that cell phone buzzes, we flip it over no matter what it is that we're doing or no matter what's going on. Every one of you have downtime. It's at different points throughout the day where you can, in good conscience, set the phone to the side out of reach so that you don't do that Pavlovian reach for it every time it buzzes or every time it dings to where you can focus on in the stillness what almighty God would have you do for that day. For some of you, God is screaming at you through that still small voice to get alone so that you can hear from him and avoid some massive tragedy that's about to take over your life. I nearly married the wrong person. I nearly wrecked her life along with mine because I didn't take time to be alone with God and listen to what he was screaming through conviction through that still small voice if I would just stop being so busy. Even Jesus, the people looking for him, they want to be healed. They want to hear a message of discipleship. They want to know the truths of Almighty God. Those are all such good things. But if he doesn't get alone in the stillness, he's not going to be able to hear what the Father wants him to do. It begs the question, are you distracted by dreadful sounds? Are you distracted by dreadful sounds? The big sign from Almighty God isn't in the rocks being shattered by wind, the earthquake, or the fire. The sign from Almighty God is that still, small voice, the Holy Spirit, when you know you couldn't have come to that conclusion on your own. Now flip back over to 1 Kings 19, And let's look at verse 13. I never caught this verse before, uh, but it's a very powerful verse. Look at verse 13. It says, when Elijah heard the gentle whisper, when he heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. Underline, he pulled his cloak over his face. And he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Now look at this. What does the Lord say to him in that moment? Then a voice from heaven said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Stop right there for just a minute. The exact same question that God asks him in his personal prayer time is the exact same word that the Lord says to him from the Moses suite on the Moses balcony on the Moses mountain in the moment where the presence of God is physically there in front of him. The same way that he hears from God in prayer is the same way that he would hear from God from the Moses suite in person. It's a powerful truth for us to remember. Sometimes we can think to ourselves, oh, the The world is so crazy. Man, there's so much going on. I've got so much to do. When everything calms down and I'm in the Moses suite and I'm in the Moses balcony and I really have time to commit to prayer with Almighty God, that's when I'll be able to hear from him and really experience his presence. The exact same thing that Moses says in the cave is the exact same thing that he hears from the Moses balcony. What are you doing here, Elijah? It says that Elijah put his cloak over his face. I'd never caught this before. Two commentators said he covers his face in guilt 
and shame. Can I tell you why that's interesting? Because when faced with the presence of Almighty God, Elijah had come to realize that the sins of society, the sins of his country, were sins that he himself were complicit in as well. He had not been free and was the only one who'd been perfect. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. If you're taking notes, write this down. What should believers do when we get worried about the direction of the country? Number one is find the stillness. And number two is address your guilt and fear. Address your guilt and fear. Sometimes when we get so worried about a big macro thing that we can't control, is then the Lord is telling us through the still small voice, there are things I want you to work on. There are things that need to change in your life. There are ways that society at large has affected you and the way that you experience the outside world. And instead, it's a whole lot easier to focus on the big thing than it is to focus on what needs to change within each one of us. If you're taking notes, write this down. Aimlessly worrying about big societal struggles we can't control helps us avoid addressing the personal change that God is calling for. I say that again. Aimlessly worrying about big societal struggles we can't control helps us avoid addressing the personal change that God is calling for. Some of you would say, well, are you saying that we shouldn't be activists, that we shouldn't work towards big societal change in Jesus' name? I'm not saying that at all. Many of you are called for such a time as this to be here in this position. But listen to me. If it dips into worry and despair unless one thing happens, then you have missed the point of God's sovereignty. He's in charge and he can do whatever he stinking wants, whenever he stinking wants, through whomever he stinking wants, however he stinking wants. You got to come to a point where you see past the worry to God being in complete control. When we don't do that, it becomes a smoke screen, and then we continue to hurt people around us. It's a great little movie called Forrest Gump. You ever seen Forrest Gump before? It's one of my favorites. When you watch Forrest Gump, Forrest is in love with a girl named Jenny. They've grown up in Greenbow, Alabama, all right? And in the movie, Jenny moves away from home, kind of lives a wild life, does different things, and uh, there's a point where she comes to D.C. And you remember, it's the famous uh, protest that happened, uh, protesting the Vietnam War right there at the uh, Lincoln Memorial. And do you remember? She comes in, and there's this beautiful scene where the two of them meet in the reflecting pool. You could not pay me to get into that nasty water. All right, I'm just telling you. Okay, they get into the reflecting pool. They hug together. It's this beautiful, culminating moment. Do you remember what happens afterwards? They go to the political meeting, and and while they're there at the political meeting, Jenny's boyfriend is there. And there's a point where Jenny's boyfriend hits her, abuses her. And Forrest, seeing that moment, feels justified and then going up and punching that dude in the face. If you're going to hit her, then I'm going to hit you. He goes and punches the guy. They pull them apart. It's this crazy moment. And then he says to Jenny, come with me, get away from that guy. And they leave. And you remember they have this beautiful scene where they walk through D.C. together. Many of you have had that lovely stroll through this town. They stroll through the city together. They have this magical moment. And then what happens? They get to the bus where 
Jenny's boyfriend is, and they're about to load up and go to the next site that they're going to protest. And do you remember what happens? The dude looks at her and he goes, Jenny, I'm sorry. It's just that bleepity bleep Lyndon Johnson. Do you remember that? It's just that bleepity bleep Lyndon Johnson. And here's what's nuts. Jenny hears that. It's just society. That's the reason. This, the, the ails of society are the reason that I hit you and abused you. Okay, that, that's it, Jenny. That's the reason. And what happens? Jenny sits there and she receives it because she believes the lie. It's textbook. It's classic. And here's what happens in that moment. By focusing on the ails of society, he can avoid focusing on the fact that it doesn't matter who's in office, you should never treat someone that way, amen? It's what a lot of us have done through this stretch of the last seven years. As we've sat there and gone, ah, can't stand society, moving in the wrong direction, country's headed in the wrong way. And then here's the thing, the Lord is screaming at us through that still small voice, listen to me, be a reflection of my son. Listen to me, you hold the hope, the joy, the peace that could change everything. You hold the message of Christ. You know the truth of scripture. But we focus on the macro because to look in the mirror to step into the light means that things have to change with us. Parts of the sinful culture had affected Elijah too. And in meeting with Almighty God face to face, the first thing he says is God says, why are you running? Don't you trust me? I sent fire when you asked for it. I stopped the rain at your word. I brought it again when you prayed for it a second time. Why are you running, Elijah? What are you doing here? Why did you demand the Moses suite? Why did you demand to see me? If you're taking notes, write this down. Intimate time with God shines a light in the shadow of your soul. Let me say that again. Intimate time with God shines a light in the shadows of your soul. It says in scripture, when we are in the light, as he is in the light, that the darkness fades. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When we step into the light, we not only see him, we also see clearly ourselves. It begs the question, are you a child of the light, or are you a shadowy figure? Are you a child of the light, or are you a shadowy figure? Guilt and fear are not meant to define believers. In fact, it says in 1 Timothy that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Do you realize that when you choose fear, you forfeit power, love, and self-discipline? You forfeit great things so that you can worry at God. One last verse, one last set of verses, and we'll close today. Look at 1 Kings chapter 19, and now let's look at verses 14 through 18. One thing I appreciate about Elijah is his consistency. Look at what happens here in verse 14. Again, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you running? Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. He prays the exact same prayer that he did verses earlier. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Watch what the Lord says here. It's so powerful. Verse 15, 
The Lord said to him, Elijah, go back the way you came. Now stop right there for just a minute. Go back the way you came. If you are on the run, what is the one thing you don't want to do in order to get caught? Retrace the exact same steps because they will be hot on your trail. The Lord says to him, they have no power over you that I don't allow. I am sovereign, remember? Go back the way you came. You did this massive journey. You traveled 70 miles, 40 days and 40 nights. And now my, my advice to you is go back exactly where I started you. He says, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, look at this. Anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shephat, uh, from Abel Manoah to succeed you as a prophet. Underline anoint, anoint, anoint. He says, Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Stop right there for just a minute. He looks at him and says, I want you to go and anoint kings that will be on the throne after Ahab. The first thing the Lord says to him is, I have prepared a future beyond you. Anoint kings. He says, appoint a prophet to take your place. And now look at this. It says in verse 18, and yet, Elijah, I reserve 7,000 in Israel. Underline 7,000 in Israel, all of, whom knee, all of whose knees have not bound down to Baal and all of whose mouths have not kissed him. Stop right there for just a minute. Remember the story of Obadiah that we read several weeks ago where, Elijah had, or where Obadiah had hidden 100 prophets in the mountainside? What God says to Elijah is, you say you're the only one? You know there's 100 prophets hidden in the mountainside. And God goes, and you know, know what, Elijah? I've got 70 times that hidden away in the nation of Israel. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that I'm not at work in the hearts of men in Israel. He says, you see one. He said, Obadiah sees a hundred. He goes, there are 70 Obadiahs out there making sure that we're taking care of God's prophets. Now listen to me. If you're taking notes, what do we do? What should believers do when we get worried about the direction of our country. Number one is find the stillness. Number two is address your guilt and fear. And number three is prepare for a future. Prepare for a future. He says anoint kings. He says prepare for a political transition of power. He says not only that, prepare for a religious transfer of power. Anoint Elisha to step up as your replacement, to be the one so that you can know, not only will the country continue on, but I will also continue on the preaching of Yahweh. I will also continue on the work of the prophet. Teach Elisha, pour into him, because there is a future on the horizon. During dark times in the world, there is always a market for end times talk. Can I tell you what the Bible says from the mouth of Jesus himself? No one knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, not even the son. That's from the mouth of Jesus. He says the father, it is in his mind when that is going to happen. Now, just for the record, over the years, I've heard this. I've heard people say, no one knows the day or the hour, but that doesn't mean you can't know the year. For crying out loud, there's a really famous book called 88 Reasons Christ Will Return in 1988. It's a famous book. And you know what? The dude got rich off of it. 
And then when it didn't happen, he went, well, actually, it's 1989, such and such. And he got rich off that book, too. You know why? Because when people stop praying and they start worrying at God, when they stop believing in God's sovereignty, you go, it's so much worse than it's ever been in my lifetime. It must be headed for the end. And you know what? It may very well be. But that is not your concern. Live like Christ is coming back today. Live for him as if this was the last day you'd have on this earth. But build like he's coming back in a million and a half years. That we couldn't just see the blood of Christ cover billions, but trillions upon trillions upon trillions. The blood of Christ is so strong, it covers all sin, past, present, and future. Now listen to me. Have you fallen into the darkness? It doesn't mean that you can't study prophecy. Studying prophecy is a very, very special thing. But thinking that that makes you allowed to pinpoint the day and the time, you're going against the word of Jesus there. No one knows the day or the hour. No one knows the year. We just know that Jesus said, it's soon. It's something that's on the horizon that you need to be prepared for. But he says to Elijah, the Lord says, appoint kings. Appoint replacements. Be involved in discipleship of Elisha. You see, that's the key in preparing for the future. We make disciples. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't go, all right, let's start a building project, right? When we started Waterfront, that wasn't the first thing we did. Let's start a building project, and uh, we're going to build First Church of Jerusalem, all right? And uh, we're going to get some land. We're going to build this thing up, uh, and then we're going to overthrow the Romans because the government really is the problem. What did Jesus do? Jesus came to earth, and he said, give me 12. And then he teaches those 12. And from those 12 come 120. And from those 120 come 3,000 added to their number that day on Pentecost. And from the 3,000 added to their number that day on Pentecost, they take over all of Europe with the gospel message. And then from Europe, they take it to the rest of the world. Listen to me. Discipleship? Discipleship is the way we prepare for the future. And by the way, that is biblical as well. One more verse and we'll call it a day. You ready? Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I guess technically it's two verses. Jeremiah 3. Here's what Jeremiah has to say during a dark time. In Jeremiah chapter 3, we have a passage here where the nation has split. It's Israel and it's Judah. And basically what he says at the beginning of chapter 3 is Jeremiah says, Israel, you've ditched me as your national faith. He says, you've divorced me. And then he comes back and says, and Judah, you claim me as your national faith. You claim Yahweh as your national God. But you know what? You're adulterous. He says, you claim me with your lips, but you don't live like it. You kiss the mouths of foreign gods. He says, I feel like the husband that you're cheating on in this circumstance. And here's what happens. What happens next is in Jeremiah 3, verses 14 and 15. Here's what he says. He goes, man, half the country's faithless. Half the, half the Jewish people are faithless. And he says, the other half are adulterous. Verse 14, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Look at this. I will choose you. That's the heart of Almighty God. Even though you have divorced me, even though you have cheated on me, he says, I'm your husband and I will choose you. One from a town, two from a clan, and I'll bring you to Zion. He'll call out to those individual hearts. Look at verse 15. It says, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Stop right there for just a minute. 
minute. Shepherd here doesn't mean pastor. Shepherd means a disciple is raised up in your workplace, is raised up in your church setting, is raised up in your community, is raised up in our country where the disciple is raised up as a shepherd to go, you know what? I can't change the fabric of society all by myself, but the Lord is up to something. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my office, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my platoon, we will serve the Lord. To the best of my abilities, I will be a disciple. I will live for him with all I've got. And it doesn't matter if it's legal or not. It doesn't matter if it's easy or not. It doesn't matter if it's blessed by the government or not. We've done ministry in Slovakia and Romania for decades now. And can I tell you, they'll tell you stories about when it was illegal to be a Christian. They'll tell you stories. We saw it. Can I tell you the beauty of discipleship? You can do it no matter what government's in power. You can do it no matter what's going on in society. It is a foolproof plan, and it's the reason Jesus went straight to it. He didn't build a church. He didn't build a building. He didn't overthrow a government. He said, give me 12. If I can teach them to hear the still small voice, he says, then they will be unstoppable. It's why Jesus says, it's good for you that I go because then the counselor is coming. The still small voice that every believer has access to. The counselor is coming and he will share with you the truths that I could only scratch the surface of in person. One last little quote for you today. To trust Jesus for salvation is also to trust God's plan for how history unfolds. Let me say that again. To trust Jesus for salvation is also to trust God's plan for how history unfolds. It begs our final question today. Is it time that you embraced disciple-making? Is it time that you embraced disciple-making? Instead of trying to be an empire builder, empires fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. I love you guys. I hope you were able to receive this the right way today. No politics attached to this discussion. This is what the believer does, come what may, in front of them. Let's bow our heads for prayer.